James chapter five, beginning with verse seven. Be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the father waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance, and you have seen how the Lord, how he finally bought a, brought it about that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or a simple no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you troubled? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins each to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just like we are. And yet he prayed passionately that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from error, the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we have a lot to cover here. And I wanted to start with just one of my favorite depictions uh, of the world uh, that's, I think, provided by us by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you ever uh, read uh, the books or watched the movies, you know that in this fantasy world of Narnia that it's always winter. And not only is it always winter and cold and frigid, but there's no Christmas. There's no, there's no hope. There's, there's nothing to look forward to. And, and, and the reason why Narnia is always winter is because of the spell of the white witch. But if you know the story, uh, early in the story, suddenly there is the smell of spring. And then there's the patches of green and the snow melt and, and the air isn't so bitter and, and the ice from, from the trees begins to melt because what's going on is the spell of the witch is being broken and the reason why it's being broken because a greater power has arrived. The great lion Aslan uh, is, is on the move. And this, of course, if you know the story, doesn't mean uh, that it's all over. There's still battles that need to be fought. But, but in this great conflict, uh, spring is coming to Narnia with summer uh, soon to follow. And I think this depiction describes our world, a world that's winter with no hope. 
Why is it winter with no hope? It's because there's a wicked spell cast by the evil one, causing sin, sickness, and suffering to now dominate our world. But we as Christians know that this is not the entire story. We know that the great lion has already come and that resurrection is, is, is springing up and hopefully uh, many of us or all of us have already experienced this thaw uh, where, where we co- we've come to know a Christ personally and we know of spring's arrival in our hearts where sin is being broken and we are experiencing this new creation. Uh, but even though this spell is being broken, it's still, it's still winter. And there's still a white witch and there's still a curse and there's still a battle. This, this isn't peacetime. We're at war. There's a cosmic struggle uh, that's being waged right now for every man, woman, and child. And that's going on right now, whether you know it or not. And in this struggle, this battle, this, this, this cosmic conflict, we know who wins, Jesus. Jesus has won. He is winning and he will win. His death has conquered the curse. His resurrection conquered death. As C.S. Lewis says, he is the king, I tell you. And as Revelation, the last book of our Bible says, the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And this king will reign forever and ever. That's what we get to look forward to. But it's not game over. The great conflict right now is being played out and we're a part of it. Which is why James in verse seven says, be patient then my brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. He's, he's getting them focused on, on, on the return of Christ. And I was thinking about this week. I, I don't know if we think about this enough. I don't know if we talk about this enough. I don't know if we sing about it enough. He's coming back that there is a telos, an end to which our world is moving. There is a day uh, when Christ shall return. And if you wanna just think about what this is going to be, uh, what it's gonna look like, uh, listen to this text, and maybe you even wanna just close your eyes as I read from Revelation 19 at the end of our Bibles where John gives the vision of Christ's return. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with judge justice, he will judge and make war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and on his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and pure. And coming out of the rider's mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, He has a name written, maybe a tattoo, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. (laughs) He's coming back. That's why James continues to build this in, in verse eight. He says, the Lord is coming near. 
And he pushes this even further in verse nine. He says, the judge is standing at the door. See, what James is reminding us is that we are in the fourth quarter, that we are coming to the end. And anyone who's played uh, sport knows that the fourth quarter is when the game gets intense, when it's blood, sweat, and tears, where every ounce and focus, grit, everything the athlete has is, is demanded. I love the fourth quarter. I love that James says we're in the fourth quarter. And what James now is doing is not just telling us the fourth quarter, but he's, he's now addressing the winter, the suffering, the sickness, and the sin. And he's, a, he's addressing these realities, not as they exist outside of us, outside of the church, outside of the reality of a Christ follower. He's addressing them as they exist here. Because anyone who tells you that suffering and sickness and sin are no longer realities for the Christian is badly mistaken. Because until Christ returns, sin, suffering, and sickness will be present day realities for every blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. So in verses seven through 12, James tells us what we're to do with suffering. And then in verses 13 through 15, James tells us what we are to do with sickness. In verses 16 through 20, James tells us what we're to do with sin. So first, verses 7 through 12, suffering. I don't know if you know this, but every New Testament writer addresses the issue of suffering. Uh, Again, suffering in the life of a church, suffering in the life of a believer. They, They just assume that suffering is a part of the deal. So they don't talk about suffering in terms of if we suffer. They, they always talk about suffering in terms of when we suffering because to every New Testament writer, suffering is just a fact. It's, it's, it's part of the deal of, of belonging to Christ. And so this notion or this theology uh, that I hear sometimes that says, well, Christ suffered so that we wouldn't have to suffer, that's actually a form of spiritual immaturity. Jesus did not carry his cross so that you and I would not have to carry our cross. The cross is central to Jesus' kingdom and it's central to the life of a disciple. This is why if you read the church history books, uh, the early church, they embraced suffering. They couldn't wait to suffer. (laughs) I'm not kidding. To suffer uh, for Jesus was, was, was such an honor. In fact, it was their greatest joy in life that they could be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Now, I understand this makes absolutely no sense to us today because from the time uh, we entered this world, we have been taught that suffering is the worst thing imaginable. This is what we've been taught. I mean, I even think about, you know, what parenting has become. Parenting today has has largely uh, become how to eliminate suffering from your child's life, and and that is because in our in our mindset, uh, suffering is the worst thing uh, imaginable, which is 
which is why we try to eliminate suffering as opposed to embrace it. I think this is one of the reasons why so many people today have lost the capacity to suffer and to suffer well and why so many people just live to show off their life to the world, a life that's shallow, pleasure-filled, pain-free. I mean, who shows off to the world their suffering today, their pain? Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, the great British writer of the 20th century, such an incredible thinker, wrote this. He said, suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would, would become. I'd rather eliminate happiness. The world without suffering would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Is he right? And see, this is why James is, is, is ending his letter by, by telling Christians how they are to suffer. Look at verse seven, look at verse eight, look at verse nine. Uh, I could sum all these verses up. James is saying, suffer well, Christian. Be patient in your suffering. Stand firm in verse eight in your suffering. Don't grumble and complain uh, in your suffering. In verse nine, and what he's exhorting uh, Christians to is to suffer in a different way than, than the world suffers. In other words, we don't fall apart. We don't panic. We have this sense of poise in the midst of our suffering, this confidence that we're okay. And the reason why we can do this, the reason why we can actually be this way is First, we have a theology of suffering that is so different from, from the world that, that I mean, they, they don't have it. And this theology tells us why we're suffering and God's massive purpose that he has when we suffer. And J, James gave us that theology right out of the gates in chapter one when he said, count it all joy when you suffer. <laughs> count it all joy, really, James? You mean I gotta, I, I gotta count this trial in my life right now? this thing that I have to walk through as joy? And he says, yeah. Think about what your suffering produces. You walk through that trial and you don't even know the opportunity that that trial has, first of all, to produce in you perseverance, says James. And, and, and that word in, in the original language literally means to hyperstand. And I, I would say one of the best depictions of hyperstanding, we had that huge storm uh, a week and a half ago. And if anyone was watching it outside and, and, and saw the wind and, and, and you saw a tree and you saw this storm uh, on hurling on that tree, everything it could, and that tree is just bending, going all over the place. But in the end, it bends, but it doesn't break. That's hyperstand. That's why James says, consider it joy when, when, when you get to go through the storm because you develop that muscle to hyperstand. And he said, that then produces in you this, this thing that's gonna make you strong and not just strong and mature, but 
Christ strong, Christ mature. And now James is adding to this. He's like, when we suffer, we have this amazing hope. And we don't put our hope in this world and things that rust and corrode and rot. He's like, don't you know we have a, a much greater hope? He's coming back. And, and, and when the great lion returns, uh, the witch's spell is going to be broken and more than just broken. Winter is going to become spring. The spring is gonna become summer and, and the whole world will be right. It, it will be restored. No more sin, decay, or death. That's our hope. And see, this is why the New Testament writers, starting with Jesus, are, are constantly telling the church to set its heart on the return of Christ, to fix our eyes on the Lord's return. When's the last time you thought about it? When's the last time your heart just like, Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back. I can't wait to see you. When's the last time your heart said, Maranatha, Lord, come now, quickly. James just keeps building on this. Uh, he says, essentially, with this hope, the hope of Christ's return, when it burns in the heart of a believer, uh, then verse 10, we can be like the prophets. We can suffer like the prophets. And if you know anything about the prophets, uh, they were so committed to just the bold proclamation of God's word, irrespective of the circumstances or the cost. In fact, Stephen, right before he was stoned in the New Testament, uh, stood before uh, the Jewish Supreme Court of his day. And, and one of the things he said to them is he's like, was there ever a prophet that your fathers didn't persecute? They were all persecuted. And then you also add to this uh, Hebrews Chapter 11, which describes what this looked like. And here, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, the prophets, they were tortured. They refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers, floggings, even chains, imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins destituted, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. That's how the prophets suffered. James is bringing all of this in, into what he's saying to the church is, church, suffer like the prophets. And he doesn't even stop with the prophets, but then in Verse 11, he takes this to Job, and you talk about someone who hyper-stood in the, in the worst of life storms. And I don't know if you know the story of Job, but Job had a beautiful family. He had seven boys and three girls. He had incredible wealth. He had 7,000 sheep, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, multiple servants. And one day, Job, he lost it all. And you read the, the, the book and, and you see that there was nothing fake about his response to pain. I mean, Job wrestled with God. He wore sackcloth. He, he covered himself in ashes. He painted that ash all over his face and his body. He expressed deep cries and loud wails. His, 
He endured this pain and all of it, Job remained a very authentic human being. He was authentic in his pain. And more importantly, he was authentic in his faith right to the end. In fact, I think he said some of the most incredible things a person could ever say in the midst of of life storms. One of the things he says right away is he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be his name. A little bit later, he says, even though God would slay me, I would still praise him. And then a little bit later, he says, I know my redeemer lives and I know that in the end, he will stand upon my grave and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I know it, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me for that. But I think the most amazing thing that came out of Job's mouth is actually at the end of the book and it's after God speaks to him when God says to him, brace yourself like a man, Job. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you the truth, how things are right now. It's after that and it's before God blesses him. In Job 42, verse five, Job says this. He says, God, my ears, my ears had heard about you. But now my eyes have seen you. Did you hear what Job just said? He said, God, I used to be someone that knew about you. But God, now I got to know you. And Job says this when his life is still on the dung heap, his wife still loathes him, his possessions are still gone, his children are all still dead. And it's in this suffering, it's in this storm to use the language that James uses in our text in verse 11, that Job and his life has been blessed. That's what we sang this morning. All my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. But did you read the context of the word you were singing? The storm, when life's hard, Why can we sing these kind of songs from these places? Because this is where we get to know God. God is close to the brokenhearted. God saves those who are crushed in spirit. And see, this is why Christians throughout history, they have taught the world how to suffer. (laughs) Throughout history, Christians have a certain poise. We... We don't fall apart. We don't panic. We're at peace. Suffering for us is is joy. It's great joy. And why is it? Because we have a theology that tells us that this is how God turns our character into gold. This is how God makes our hearts pure. This is how we become complete in Christ. And even more than a theology of what we're becoming, in the suffering, we have God who's with us who comes to us and wraps his arms around us. And guess what? This God, he's coming back. So church, are we suffering well? Are we suffering like the prophets? Do we have the capacity to suffer like them? Are we suffering like Job? Next reality, sickness. Verses 13 through 15, James says, 
If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And that prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I was just thinking about this this week. It, it drew my heart just today how we think about healing and then it drew my heart to medicine, to modern medicine. And uh, you don't have to draw the conclusions that, that I drew as I was thinking about this this week, but uh, I believe that medicine has become the new religion of our day, that doctors have become our new high priests and that hospitals have become our new places of worship. I think our, our, today caring for the body uh, has replaced taking care of one's soul caring for our physical has replaced taking care of the spiritual. Now, you don't have to draw those same conclusions that I've drawn, uh, but, but let me at least start with this question. What is health? What, what, what does it mean to have health? And I think health to us today means the absence of sickness, the absence of disease. But the biblical view of, of health is deeper and broader than this. Health is so much more biblically than just the absence of sickness, health in the Bible, I can sum up in one Hebrew word. Health is shalom. And shalom is when my body and my mind and my heart and my emotions and my relationships are all in this perfect peace and place of rest. And why are they in that, in that place? Because my heart and my life is in harmony and at peace in shalom with God. And so the highest blessing of God in the Bible is not just health, it is, it's shalom. And this is why, according to the Bible, shalom is the equivalent of good health. And I could take you to so many verses, but I'll just stay in our text. Uh, if you look at the word in verse 14 for sickness, uh, in the original language, it's the Greek word asteneo. Now, this word is all over our New Testament, and, and uh, every time uh, this word shows up, it's translated as either weak or weakness because that's what asteneo, that word in four, verse 14 for sickness, it means. It means weak, to be weak or weakness. Then when you get to verse 15, the word for sick there is the Greek word kamno, uh, which literally means to be weary. So already we, we, we can see that James is addressing something more than just physical illness, but any physical, emotional, relational, spiritual condition that makes us weak or weary. And then James makes what I think is a very bold move. He connects sickness to something specific. Do you see it? It's in verses 15 and 16. When he says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up. And if they have sinned, it feels like, oh, he's just switching subjects. No, he's not. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Then he goes, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
And what is James saying here? He's, he's saying that our sickness or our weakness, our weariness has something to do with our sin. That's what he said. Not our circumstances, not Satan, but our sin. Now, this might mess with some of us. First, let me say, not all sickness is the result of sin, just like not all suffering is the result of sin, but sin can result in sickness. And I think psychologists uh, have seen this correlation. Uh, Psychosomatic illness, that's not just uh, a, a sickness that's in a person's head. That's also sickness that can be in their body. Your ulcer is because you worry. Your headache is because of your stress. And this is all over the Bible, but I'll take you to uh, Psalm 38. David praying this prayer. Obviously, he's dealing, uh, he's coming to God with this sin in his life. And it starts off, Lord, do not rebuke me in, in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Because of your wrath, there's no health in my body. There's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. He says, my guilt has overwhelmed me like burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. And he does the same thing in Psalm 32. And and this connection is is, uh, quite frequent in, in our Bibles because in the Bible, sin always brings about Chaos. It brings chaos to our relationships, chaos to our neighborhoods, to our marriages, to our families. It brings chaos to our workplaces, our schools, and it brings chaos to our bodies. Sin destroys shalom. It always does. So what then are we to do with our sickness? Well, James prescribes two things. First, in verse 14, he says, anoint the sick person with oil. Now, what you need to know is that oil in that day was used for medicinal purposes. That's why the Good Samaritan in Jesus' parable poured oil and wine on the man's wounds. This was part of the practice of ancient medicine. Oils have medicinal properties. Uh, Wine was a cleanser. So in other words, when we're sick or weak, James is saying we should use medicine. We should use modern medicine. God created science. God created our minds to understand it and to know how to apply science. So we are to use science. But also, if you know in the Bible, the anointing with with oil also symbolized the anointing of the person with God's spirit. So we not only have to anoint our wounds with medicine, but our wounds also need God. They need his spirit. And this is why James' second prescription is prayer. He says, pray for the person. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Verse 14, is any among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church and pray over them. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Verse 16, pray for each other so that you may be healed. Because according to James, prayer 
is not just a way of being nice and expressing nice things to someone. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. It affects things. It affects change. It affects restoration. It affects healing. Prayer affects God. When we think about Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, he says, any one of you who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In fact, he will do even greater things than these. And then he concludes this by saying, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Now listen, I don't have time to explain <laughs> all that's in here other than, other than to say, how exciting is this? I mean, think about everything that Jesus came to the world to do, to heal and to restore what's broken, to redeem and reconcile what's split apart, to bring shalom to all of our chaos and to bring winter, uh, to make things spring and summer, new creation. Jesus is saying, everything that you saw me do, you can now do through prayer that God's power God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is now unleashed in our world through intercessory prayer. Because prayer is powerful and effective, says James. And James is assuming that the church has a ministry of healing prayer. That the church is dealing with sickness through prayer. This is why verse 14, uh, this this ministry begins with the elders and the elders uh, anointing the person who's sick with oil and entering into that in prayer. And I wanna say at Crossroads, uh, our elders over the 20 years of our existence have grown massively in this and it has become the favorite thing now that we do uh, as an elder board. We understand that prayer is central to our task. But I'm still gonna say, elders, let this be a word to us that our ministry first and foremost must be a ministry of prayer. The ministry of healing prayer is not limited to them because we are all kingdom of priests. We are all called to be Elijah's. We are all called to this awesome ministry of prayer, all of us. Let me tell you just a little bit about the story of Crossroads. This church, I'm not exaggerating here, should not have survived year two. God pushed huge trials into this church to humble us, to get us on our faces, literally. He brought massive uh, trials to this church to teach us how to pray, to give us this muscle, not just of, of prayer, but desperate intercessory Prayer, and in our early days, prayer bubbled up everywhere. Uh, we were doing 24-7 prayer uh, regularly. People were prayer walking their neighborhoods. They were prayer walking their schools. People were waking up uh, at 3 a.m. in the morning to pray. Uh, we had a weekly prayer gathering uh, that people just flocked to, and, and we saw God move in the midst of it, and everything that we did as a church was just so bathed in prayer. I mean, we were... We were on our faces, desperate in need of God. Crossroads, we have drifted from this. And I'm calling this church, 
like I'm calling our staff to return to God through prayer. Why? Because prayer is the ministry. And I'm calling every ministry of this church to go and learn what this means, that prayer is the ministry. Because if we're gonna have any effect, if we're gonna leave any dent on our world, it's not because of our resources or our clever strategies. It will be because prayer is at the heart of everything that we do. It will be because we are living into being a nation of priests that where our world is in pain, there is God people praying. Isaiah 62, verse five uh, says, this is God speaking. I post watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and you should keep praying all day and all night. And you who pray to the Lord, do not be silent. We're to be a people who give God no rest because our hearts are continually interceding that we're praying God's shalom, shalom into the chaos. Father, may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come to our city, God. May your kingdom come to our neighborhoods, God. May your kingdom come to our workplaces. May may your kingdom come to our schools. May your kingdom come to our marriages, to our families, to our youth, to our children. God, may your kingdom come to your church. Rise us up. Send your reign, God, upon our nation and and your your maim kaim upon the nations. We're to give God no rest. And then the text says the prayer of a righteous person affects things. And I read this and I'm like, oh no. (laughs) You know, you get all excited about prayer only to have the bubble popped. (laughs) I mean, listen, deep down, I know what I am. I'm no saint. I'm not even good. That's why Elijah says, nor is Elijah. (laughs) He's just like us. Because right now, we we have a righteousness that is not about us and our performance that we then offer to God, and now God answer our prayers, but rather we have a righteousness that of Christ that is all about his performance that he offers to us. And right now, think about Christ, where he is. He is sitting at the right hand of God, and then think about what Christ is doing right now. He is interceding to the Father on behalf of you, on behalf of us. That is going on right now. Hebrews 11 says that he lives to always intercede for us. And you think that his prayers for you aren't affecting things. And the fact that our great high priest right now is interceding for us, when we drink that into our souls, it ought to cause us then to live that out, that we could be like him, a nation of priests who stand boldly before God where our world is in pain, just interceding as he intercedes for us. It's time to pray. It's fourth quarter. Last reality, sin. I'm not gonna be too long here. I'm gonna get right to the point. I want you to drink in these words. When James in verse 19 says, if any among you wanders from the truth, those are scary words. Now listen, this church absolutely believes that when Jesus comes into a person's life as their Lord and their Savior, 
that this change is so massive that we can only talk about it in the terms that the New Testament talks about it, of this rebirth and being born again and new creation. But in all of this, it doesn't mean that sin will go away. We will continue to sin. We're still vulnerable to sin. We're still vulnerable to wandering. We're vulnerable to leaving the God that we love. This can happen to absolutely anyone. And the person who's most susceptible to this happening to is the person who doesn't know that. In fact, sometimes I'm just blown away when I'm counseling someone and I can just feel this, this, this idea that, that this person just you know thinks that they can toy with sin and and, and play around with it and, and, and get close to the line. And in my mind, sometimes I'm thinking, aren't you scared? And sometimes I'll even ask them that and, and the response will be something like, well, I'm a Christian. No, I'm not scared. It's, it's like they have no conception that, that you can sin your way to a place that's a very, very long way away from God. As a church attender, as a small group leader, as an elder, as a pastor. In fact, this week I was with the guy who discipled me in college. It was such a joy to be, him, be with him, and we're both old now. And we were recounting all the amazing people that we know who got entangled with, with sin. And for some of them, they've, they've never returned to God. It's because sin is potent. It's not something that we play with. And, 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 and the reason it's potent is not just because it's so attractive and alluring, but it, it's so numbing in its effects that a person can get to the point in their sinning where they can look over their shoulder at God and God just looks so unattractive to them. Where they literally become numb to the wooings and the stirrings of the Holy Spirit and they never return that's what's at stake. This is why I'm constantly aware of the fact that I'm one or two or three decisions from ruining my marriage, ruining my family, tarnishing the reputation of Christ. And yes, I know the verses. I know that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion, but God uses a community Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, sin demands to have a person by themselves. It withdraws this person from the community because the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them. And the more deeply this person becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light because in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a church. In confession, though, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. This is why James says, confess your sins one to another. We gotta get it out of the closet, out of the place of darkness where Satan rules and into the light where God rules. And look at verse 20. Uh, James says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. God uses 
a people to protect his sheep. Eternal security or whatever you wanna call it is a community project. That's why if you ever see me wander, And all the things that this book of James has called us to, whether it be the area of pride or money or the neglect of the poor or workaholism or neglecting my family or inappropriate relations with women or excessive use of authority, I'm counting on this church. We need each other. We love people, we'll go after them. So I'm gonna close this morning by asking two questions. Are you dabbling? Are you toying? Are you straying? Are you the person that needs to be rescued today? If this is you, don't withdraw, don't isolate. Have the guts to do what James says. Get real and confess your sin, not just to God. But confess it to a brother, confess it to a small group, to your spouse, confess it here if you have to knowing that Satan rules in the darkness, we have to get our sin out into the daylight. And I love this. This is why we can confess our sin. This is why it should be almost exciting this morning for us to do it. James ends this whole letter with the hope of a covering for sin. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care how far you are from God. I don't care how deep you're entangled in something, there is a covering. And that covering is Christ and his blood. His grace is greater, I promise. Second question. Do you know anybody right now who's wandering? Write him a letter. Give him a phone call. Set up a face-to-face meeting. Get together with them and say, God wants you back. God, this morning, we are so gracious. We're so grateful for your truth and grace that are in Christ. We have a place, God, that we can bring our suffering and our sickness and our sin. And that place is you, Jesus. And we can be healed. And so maybe even this morning, God, would you have some of us take first steps, turning back to you? This morning, if any of you need to do mikvah, the bowls are right up here. God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just. I will forgive you of all your sin. Jesus said he's a father standing on a porch just longing for his son, for his daughter to come home. And God, if there's anyone who needs to come home today, God, may that happen. In your name we pray, amen.